hit record. Let's get going now. Um, it's the six show. It's the six show. It's the six show. Welcome everybody to the Shick Show. I'm here today with my esteemed guest. I'm using big $5 words now because, you know, I've got uh, five or six people that actually listen to me. But uh, someone who has lived a lot life has to offer, who has a list of accomplishments that continues to grow, but includes two undergraduate degrees, a master's, a doctorate, 43 years as a full-time pastor, Currently operates a multi-million dollar construction business that builds and remodels Planet Fitness gyms. Yes. Up and down the East Coast. All right. All right. Currently has been making knives for a few years. I just got my hands on a few of them, guys. These things are just incredible. Just simply beautiful pieces of art in, in my eyes. Um, you know, so but I think you're most proud of, and, and I've, I've known you long enough to know that I think your most proud accomplishment is your family. Oh, yeah. Uh, which includes his wife, Julie, and four children, which are Kristen, Ben, Ashley, and Lauren. Wow. I'm out of breath just talking about it. You've lived it. Yeah, we've had a lot of blessings in life, you know, <laughs> and four kids. You know, the oldest one's 41 now, and the youngest is 24. So they've they've all gone through the stages of of uh, adolescence to adulthood and uh, I love when they come home and dad, they say dad this adulting is tough you know <laughs> <laughs> well everybody wherever you're at give Mr. Gary Hall a round of applause you know wherever you're listening at and I got listeners that listen while they're getting ready in the morning and driving in the car and some of them are sneaking it in at work I've heard and uh, I've got a, I've got a cousin that he listens while he's at lunch. My wife listens while she bike rides. Outstanding. You know? And I actually do listen to him so I can go back and it's kind of like, uh, and I'm sure you've done this, you know, with all your work you've done, you go back and you look at your own work and you pick it apart. I, I man, I'm always picking apart. We were just talking just now about how, um, you know, my first few podcasts, I wouldn't wear headphones. Now I do, so I know that I'm I'm up on my mic and stuff like that. Man, where do we begin? Wherever you want to, you know. <laughs> that's that's, you know. Well, how's the family? Family's doing great. Uh, Julie and I have been married for a number of years now, so yeah. we've learned how to tolerate each other, and even days where we enjoy each other, you know, which is even better than that. Uh, but uh, we got married a number of years ago when she was an accountant, and. Uh, uh, we were married for about a year or so. She said, you know, she came home one day. She said, I'm tired of being an accountant after 16 years of accounting. And I, I said, okay, what do you want to do? She said, you know, my grandmother was a nurse. I think I want to be a nurse. So I said, okay. We were living in, outside of Lafayette at the time, and there were three nursing schools in the area. Yeah. And so we looked at the three of them, and I said, you know, if you want to be a nurse, here's your opportunity. You're not going to get much closer to a nursing school. We were eight minutes from oh my uh, gosh. Purdue University, and uh, uh, I used the P word lightly, you know. So. Oh, man. But uh, uh, <laughs> uh, so two weeks later, she gave her uh, resignation to the accounting firm and started nursing school, and it was going to be a three-year adventure, and it was, and yeah. uh, living on one salary and yeah. doing the stuff we were doing and having a baby and all that fun stuff that goes along with that. And then uh, after she got her 
a nursing degree at St. Elizabeth School of Nursing, she she came up and said, you know, I, I, I think I wanted to get my bachelor's degree, which was 20 minutes away. And I said, okay, you know, what is that? She said, another year. I said, okay, we can do that. Yeah. And uh, after that year, she came home and she said, you know, I think I want to be a nurse practitioner. I oh said, okay, gosh. what is that? And she said, oh, that's three more years. And uh, so I said, well, we'll eat beans and potatoes, you know, <laughs> until we get through this. And, you know, then we had another kid and, you know, it just kept going. And uh, But uh, she, loved, she loves what she does and that, that makes that's for a awesome. uh, happy family. Well, you know, that's what Jennifer does. My wife yep. is, is also yep. a nurse. And yep. uh, it's interesting you bring that up. It just kind of brought back a lot of, a lot of memories because we were, we had those conversations and, um, at, at the time she was working at, um, I think, I think she may have been working at the health department here in town and she already had her bachelor's. She had a bachelor's in dietetics, never pursued it. Um, then come home and, uh, one day she said, Hey, I, uh, I'm really interested in uh, getting my nursing degree and I said, let's do it. Can we afford to go back? Can we afford for me to go back to school? And my comment to her, and this was, you know, a, a really young Scott, I must've been, uh, we just had our first baby. So we must've been 24 ish, 23, 24. And my, my response to her was, if we're asking that question, we have to. It's what we have to do. If we're asking the question, can we afford it? Can we, can we afford to chase our, our dreams and our, you know, the things we want, we got to, uh, and what's interesting is same thing, you know, a lot of, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of, um, a lot of ramen, you know? <laughs> Yeah. But those are the fun times oh, to get man. through, you know, and, you know, uh, it's, that, it's that struggle that yeah. it is so precious. I, mm. Yeah. You know, and after two bachelors and a master's, after Julie went back to get her nurse practitioner degree, I said, you know, if you're going to be laying on the living room floor studying every night for three or four hours, I might as well go back and get my doctorate there and lay down go. next to you, you know. And <laughs> we can, rather than being out of sync, you finish yours and then I go back to yeah. get my doctorate. Let's let's get it done at the seven, same time. And so uh, That's awesome. seven years later, it, you know, uh, Fuller Theological Seminary Ooh. in Pasadena, it was done, you know. It's a grind. It's I, I, Sometimes I wonder, and, and I had considered pursuing my doctorate at one point, and a lot of the conversation was, it's grit. It's grit. You've got you to gotta push through that. It, it shows what type of uh, person you are to, to be able to fight through those hard times, to fight through those times you don't want to study that you're like, I'm already doing something I, I really enjoy and love anyway. And, uh, man, congratulations on that. That's, that's a huge accomplishment. I'd looked at one point and I think it's somewhere less than 1% of the population in the U S has a doctorate. I may be wrong. Mm. So, but uh, I think that was what it was. And I've said on uh, other podcasts, I wish I had an intern. Yeah. Uh, if I can find an intern, I will get one that will look up yeah. stuff like this for That's me. That's right, yeah. You can so, do a fact checker for you, you know. So, uh, yeah, where you're looking, I'll tell a story. I came home after getting my doctorate, and uh, uh, I'd go to four or six weeks a year out in Pasadena and study eight hours a day in oh classes. And, and then in the off time, you had to do working papers and 
like 6,000 pages to read every month. I mean, it, was a, it was a pretty good assignment. And uh, I got my doctorate. I came home and I said to my wife, you can call me Dr. Hall now. And she said, well, I wouldn't hold my breath on that. <laughs> And I don't think she's ever called me Dr. Hall, you know. So, yeah. Well, I almost did when I introduced you. And, and I thought, you know, uh, I know some people who, who like, they want it. Oh, yeah. They want to be called doctor. Hey, yeah. you've earned it. Yeah. I, and no problem with that. That's that's their preferred way of going about it. But I have others, I think, such as you, that's like something I hold. I didn't know that until the other day when you text me, you know. Uh, I appreciate that you don't have to parade it around. Oh no, I you know not that not that I think others do. I'm not saying that at all, but it just shows how humble you are and uh, what type of a a servant you are. It opens some doors in academia that if you don't have it, you know people talk down to you instead of talking to you. Mm -hmm. You know because they don't they see you as a lesser species of human being, and uh, because you're not as educated as they are, you know that just shows their stupidity, really. Unfortunate. But uh, uh, a few years ago, my son and I started a construction business, and uh, um, well, nine years ago, and commercial, uh, and I retired early so that I could help run the business. Uh, We build and remodel Planet Fitness stores up and down the East Coast. Uh, we've gone as far as Kansas City, as far as Maine, down to the edge of Florida. and uh, But uh, we also remodel strip mall stores for Tanger Outlets, uh, for Tommy Hilfiger, Calvin Kine. I knew uh, about that part. Yeah, that yeah, umbrella company. That and yeah. uh, But uh, we got a job a few years ago in uh, Portland, Maine, and, and we had four jobs going my son and three other foremen were running those and he said dad i need you to go to maine i said for how long and he said i don't know seven eight ten twelve thirteen weeks and we were building a bio life plasma store there for at that time the fastest bio uh plasma store in america uh, company and uh it was actually out of australia and uh Mm. Uh, but, uh, they had the shell done and we went in and did everything else on the inside. And I was working with a young man from North Carolina and, uh, um, and my son had told him I was retired pastor and, you know, Dr. Hall and, uh, we were, uh, hanging drywall together and he looked at me and said, what do I call you? And I said, well, most people call me Gary. (laughs) Uh, and he said, no. He said, do I call you reverend? I said, no. I said, because if we're in a group of people and you call me reverend, they're going to be scattering, you know, <laughs> so the moment they hear that because they have some, some preconceived notions. Sure. And uh, 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 he said, well, I'll just call you Dr. Hall. And, uh, you know, like seven, eight years later, Every time I talk to him, he says, Dr. Hall, how you doing? Oh, you know, awesome. and I'm thinking, you know, <laughs> you know, here's a guy who doesn't have a high school education and yeah. uh, about half of his teeth, but he's a hell of a worker, you right. know, and uh, he works hard and uh, and we appreciate him and, you know, pay him well and take care of our guys. Yeah. Most of our guys are still with us after nine years. And so that speaks well of our company. Yeah. So. That's but awesome. the fun part about that business uh, is I don't go on the road anymore, which is good. And then secondly, um, we take a tithe off of the business and help start millennial churches. 
Okay. And that was the agreement with my son was when we started this venture that we would, you can make a living doing about anything, legal or illegal. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, you don't necessarily make a life or help other people when yeah. you're making a living. Some people don't. And so I said, you know, I'll come up with the funds that we need to start a commercial construction company, which was pretty salty. And, uh, but we're going to tithe on that business and we're going to start new millennial churches. And so we've been able to start four and we have about 1,600 worshipers in those campuses. And I I don't do any of the work. I just help provide the funds with other people to, to get those things going because Millennials are the biggest uh, population group in America, but they're the most unchurched. So, you know, when I get tired of doing business, I have to look past the business to what we're accomplishing in the world and changing, you know, and changing lives. When you reach 1,600 people for Christ over six, seven years, that's, that's, you know, that's more than I could do in six or seven years as a working pastor. Yeah. Sure. So, sure. so it's, it's, it's been pretty neat. So when you say millennial church, what do you mean by that? Because I'm sure there's plenty of people out there right now that are going, what's a millennial church? Well, I have uh, two millennials in my family, which are different than the two older kids because mm-hmm. there's about seven years difference between them. And so you get them all together and they have different value systems, a lift of different music. They like different foods. I mean, each generation uh, sort of makes its mark on the culture on the basis of, of who they are. And uh, uh, I had a guy in my knife shop a while back, and uh, he has a, a son. And his son, he was having some problems connecting with his son. And, uh, uh, and they'd always got along. And uh, he said, you know, how, how do I connect with my son? And I said, you know, when your kids are growing up, they want to be like you. And uh, then once they get to know you, they don't want to be like you. I was messing with him a little bit. And I said, so, you know, you have this appreciation stage where they want to be like you. And then uh, you have this differentiation stage where they want to be different. Now, that could be negative or positive. They could be acting out. It could be a -hmm. thousand different things. But uh, it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He just wants to be different than you. And then in being different from you, he can be be himself. And then he can move on to adulting and deciding what is the best self that that he can be. But you've got to let him be different. You can't keep your thumb on him and and make him just like you. So millennials are a different generation than Gen Xers or sure. our baby boomers at one time was the biggest generation in America. And, and they made their mark on the world. Sure. Uh, and uh, then you have their children who are more like their grandparents than their moms and dads. And uh, Gen Xers and millennials are, you know, they're just different, you know? I see that just today. Um, you know, our girls are very similar in age. Well, Lauren, I, I don't know Ashley. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't know your older children either. So I don't um, know them either. But okay. I, I still That's claim them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so Addison was here today and, and she had sent me a text. She was coming from Fort Wayne. Uh, and her and Joss live in, in uh, Muncie. So she's coming back from Fort Wayne. She said, Hey, uh, I need you to check my car out. And I'm like, 
Okay. Period. That's just how I text. And she said, Hey, do you know you put capital K period on, on that text? And, and I said, okay, do you have any idea what the difference is between okay and K period? I, it's, oh, not, it's not how they communicate. It's not. So what I found out was capital K period is an annoyed okay. <laughs> I don't I don't speak text, right? <laughs> and it's just interesting, like what you're saying, you know, both my girls. And it's interesting because my girls are only three years apart, mm. but they fall into uh, Gen Z and, and millennial. Uh, it's very interesting to watch their differences. And and I saw it and Jennifer sees it with her siblings as well. You know, my, my siblings, I'm born in, in 74. My siblings are all born in the sixties. They're culturally, they're a little bit, they see things differently than I do. And, Correct. um, you know, I can, I, I've told the story before where I wasn't afraid to talk back to my elders Right. where my brother would, I don't, I don't know that they would have imagined telling my uncle Bob to stop talking and let somebody else have a chance, you know, but I was that yeah, guy. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't afraid to correct my parents on something. Yeah. Um, What's I, that whippersnapper? No, right, yeah, that's exactly. Right, yeah. So I can, I can remember being somewhere where I called uh, and you know, my, my aunt Carol and, and uncle Bob, well, I've called them Carol and Bob or aunt Carol and uncle Bob but it's not as formal, you know, there's formal language that has happened in the past where, you know, such as miss someone, you know, it was a very Southern thing, but, um, I called him Carol and Bob. And one of, one of my relations was like, aunt Carol, uncle Bob. And I said, okay, cousin, you know, right. <laughs> Just who I am. And in, in that generation I grew up yeah. in and, uh, you know, I was very blessed to have parents that, that grew up in the fifties and, uh, were, were incredible people. Right. Um, they, they allowed me to grow and be who I was. And I was thinking about, you were talking to that, that gentleman about his, his child for the past nine years, I've been with, with junior high students mm -hmm. and you know, they're at the dawn of that social awareness. You know, adolescence is that time when, um, you're no longer trying to please your parents. You're, you're still there with it but you're starting to pull away and realize I'm my own person. I don't, I, I'm not them. I'm not tied to them. I have my own feelings. I have my own thoughts. I have my own creativity. And I always thought that was interesting. It's why I love being a junior high principal and, and teacher. I really enjoyed that age group and love that time I spent with them. Uh, I still connect with, with quite a few of the kids and right. I just had one on, on the show uh, here a while back and, uh, he's 14, getting ready to be a freshman, and mm. and Chris was like, I said, are you scared? Are you 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 know, are you nervous about becoming a freshman and moving into the high school? And he goes, Yeah, I am. You know, and he was just that anxiety, but also that ah, I'm ready. I'm ready to move forward. And, um, I think generationally we do struggle with that. Boy, my my conversations with my dad were not always <laughs> not always great. Same thing with my kids and me, and right. uh, it's it's fun to watch that. So I'm uh, just thinking as, as you were talking, how do you end up in Hartford City? How did I end up in Hartford City? I ask myself that a lot of, <laughs> a lot of times, you know. So we've been in Blackford County for 21 years. Okay. So uh, um, uh, I was, I started out at 20 as evangelist in the Southern Baptist denomination. You know, a lot of Calvin, a lot of hellfire and brimstone, yeah. you know, and turn and burn and all that kind of stuff, you know. 
And, uh, uh, and I spent five years as an evangelist in the Southern Baptist denomination, traveled all over the Midwest, East Virginia, uh, preaching and teaching every weekend, yeah. the, the basics of the Christian faith. And, uh, uh, went to, a uh, Baptist liberal arts college and, and, uh, uh, but my dad's side of the family were Southern Baptists. My mother's side were Methodist. Okay. So we would go to hear Calvin on Sunday mornings, you know, in a suit and tie, which was like a straitjacket to a little kid. You know, <laughs> and uh, thank God for lifesavers because that's the only thing to save my life. You know, my, <laughs> my mom would keep feeding me lifesavers, you know, to be quiet. Uh-huh. And uh, But on Sunday nights, a lot of Sunday nights, my mother was Methodist. We'd go to this little Methodist chapel and we'd hear this Wesleyan theology uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And, and a lot of times there were older retired pastors serving these little parishes and, mm-hmm. and churches. And when I got to Bible college, uh, my peers were like, weren't you confused hearing one major theological side, Calvin in the morning and hearing another theological side, Wesley in in the evenings, and I said no, because I was predestined to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. You know, we just eclectic and put it all together. You know, like a theological soup. And uh, but uh, uh, when I when I finished my undergraduate work, one of my best friends was going to a a Methodist seminary in Dayton, Ohio, and working in some student churches in 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 Muncie District of Indiana, and. Uh, so he said, hey, we, we need pastors up here, good pastors up here, bad. I said, well, you don't need me. I'm not a good pastor. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, uh, but he talked me into coming up and meeting with the leadership here. And uh, the, uh, the, the superintendent of that area took me around and he showed me three different students, small church uh, pastorates. And uh, he said, you can drive from here to Dayton and go to school. You have a working job here at a local church. And uh, uh, he said, what's it going to take to get you up here? Uh, Jim's already vouched for you. And uh, I said, uh, uh, so do I get to take all three churches? And, you know, it was like the bells and whistles and lights are going off in his head. I don't have to find two more pastors if I can get him to take all three. And so uh, I said, yeah, I want all three. You know, I'm used to preaching four or five, six times every weekend. So, you know, that's that's no problem. And uh, How old were you at this point? uh, 24. Four twenty-five, and uh, so I had a lot of spit and vinegar and energy, and and uh, so I'd go out and preach at one church at nine o'clock and another church at ten o'clock on the way back in to where we were living in sort of the home church, and uh, and then had eleven o'clock service there, Uh, and uh, uh, one of the churches we closed, one of the churches tripled its size, and one of the churches doubled its size. Wow. So they only left me there for three years, and so they started moving me around the state because uh, they would send me to the churches that were declining and dying and say, revive this church, you know, let's do a turnaround situation. And so I served six different settings, and uh, all of them grew between 300 and 500%. 
Wow. And so that that was the that was the fun opportunity. I didn't get involved in the politics or the administration or the major leadership of the church, but you know, reaching yeah. people, educating people, training people, teaching people, and helping people find freedom. So um, 21 years ago, they called me and said, would you come to Hartford? And well, when you when you work under a bishop, it's not, would you like to go? It's like, guess what? You're moving in July. <laughs> go home and tell your wife and kids, you know? So you don't, you don't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. And uh, so uh, we came here, it's about 50 or 60 in a downtown county seat type church. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, 15 years later, when I retired out, uh, we had a uh, recovery ministry running 60 to 100. We had a morning traditional service, about 100, and an off-site campus at the high school. Eventually moved to uh, one of the elementary schools with 60 to 100. So, you know, we about tripled our size mm -hmm. uh, in that period of time. And, and that's that's the fun part. So that's how I got here. And uh, so... Um, uh, each year when my kids would change, uh, like from elementary school to middle school to uh, high school, I would, I would just go to the leadership of the church and say, hey, uh, this is not an annual renewal. Uh, I need to be here four years to get my kid out of high school. Mm -hmm. I don't want them changing high school mid yeah. uh, career in, in high school education. And and then the next one came along and, you know, had four years of middle school <laughs> and then another four years in high school. And so that's what we negotiated out. And since we were growing and expanding and uh, the leadership of the Methodist Church at that time was pleased with that, yeah. uh, that growth model. Uh, so uh, they, just, they just left me here. I prefer being ignored by them, you know, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was one of my big questions was, you know, how much moving around was required, you know, through that, I don't know, uh, through the through the career. I mean, it, yeah, usually, more than a career. Usually you were moved at one time 50 years ago, you moved every three years, period. Interesting. And so, you know, if you had kids, you know, it yeah. was, it was hard yeah because they had to keep making <clears throat> new relationships about every three years mm -hmm. and uh, I, I was at Otterburn for in Lafayette uh, for eight years and so I tried to stretch about six or eight years mm -hmm. uh, uh, student pastorates are normally short because they want to get you in and out and moving through the yeah. their system uh, and uh, growing growing the church so something you you said earlier kind of kind of struck me because it's something that I I've I've always struggled with my own faith, my own spirituality and um from from my upbringing uh there's always the voice that that is saying follow the book, just follow the book, just follow the book. It's in the book. It's it is it's written. And then there's the other voice that is going, are you sure? Are you sure? Right. And, and I thought about that for a long time. I really wrestled with it. Um, but then as a, 
I had a moment as a teacher uh, where we're we're teaching about Martin Luther and you know him him posting uh, on the church doors and and the formation of the Protestant Church and it was a protest. Yeah, and it was just like it struck me all of a sudden. I'm like, oh my gosh, what did I miss? You know, what part of that did I miss that I could have probably answered a lot of questions I had about my own internal struggle? But do you find that? Do you find that within yourself? Do you still have a a wrestling match with spirituality and faith? In 43 years as a pastor, in in your life, you know, you talked about going to church as a, as a young man and your entire life. Is it still a wrestling match? Uh, I don't wrestle too much anymore. I'm too old to wrestle. Uh, you know, I'm still trying, Gary. I'm still know, trying. I'd rather carry a pistol and shoot you than wrestle with you. What the hell? You know. <laughs> uh, uh, wrestling for the younger guys, I think. But uh, no, uh, I spent uh, seven years uh, pre-Christian running and gunning and and, uh, you know, that was in the late 60s or early 70s. And you know, there was a lot of stuff out there to get into. And mm -hmm. I tried to get into as much of it as possible <laughs> without going into too much detail. And uh, so, uh, you know, the amazing grace and love of God just sort of found me. Uh, and it just transformed my life. And I've realized that uh, what I was throwing in the hole of my life wasn't filling it up, but God's big enough to fill up any hole in your life, in your heart, your mind, your spirit, and uh, uh, you let him in and he'll fill up all the voids. Uh, you don't have to. And then sure. you can allow that to overflow out of you what God has given to you and is giving to you. Uh, and uh an understanding of grace. Um, you know, uh, God, when he saves us and forgives us, uh, never changes. We're up and down, in and out, around about. You know, I tell some people they're like a fart in a whirlwind, you know. <laughs> they're all over the place. But, you know, God's relationship with us is based through the cross of Christ. And God established it that way because it never changes. His love is displayed to us on the cross. I love you enough to take your sins away. I love you enough to forgive you. And that forgiveness never changes. Sometimes we're good, sometimes we're bad, and sometimes we're ugly. Uh, that's part of the human nature. We're always struggling with that selfish sin nature. Mm -hmm. But God doesn't change. And his attitude doesn't change. And his contract with us in Christ doesn't ever change. He's changeless. And uh, realizing that changed my life. You know, I'm, I missed it more times than I made it. God <laughs> never changed. Sure. And, uh, you know, when God wanted to discipline me over something he didn't like in my life that wasn't uh, a good representation of him or the faith— uh, he would look at me and he would say to me, you're better than that. Not you dirty, rotten, filthy, good for nothing, right. peckerhead, sinner, you know. Uh, uh, he would look at me and he'd say, Gary, you're better now. Why are you settling for this when I created you to be this? And he gave you a vision of what he created you to be. And, you know, 
uh, I, I tell people all the time, you give a kid a little one penny sucker and then try to take it away from them. You're going to have hell on your hands, man. You're going to be wrestling that kid uh -huh. on the ground, you know. And I don't want to pull out my 9 millimeter and shoot him, you know. So uh, <laughs> I'm messing. Uh, don't edit that out. Leave it in there, oh, please. That's I, right. Yeah. I edit uh, very little. Uh, but you know what? <laughs> if you pulled out one of those big foot round suckers and said, I'll trade you. You don't have to wrestle that kid for that little penny sucker. Yeah. He'll make that trade every time. And uh, if you offer people the goodness and the love and the grace of God, um, uh, God doesn't have to take anything out of your hands kicking and screaming. Because when you see what he has to offer you, as opposed to what you're holding on to, you look at it, you know, and you think, wow, this is nothing. He's everything. Mm -hmm. uh, and you give it up. It's interesting. You made a, a comment that um, you're better than that, you know, and I had a, a guest on recently, uh, Travis Jester, who was talking about his, his struggle with drug addiction. Mm. And when he was, he had gone to jail the night he had gone to jail, someone that he had, that he knew that worked at the jail. So oh, man, Travis, you're better than that. Mm. And that stuck with him. And uh, he was sitting in that very chair, you know, just a couple months ago. And we were having one of these conversations. And he was talking about how that changed everything about his recovery and, um, you know, how it turned his life around. And, um, and I've heard that from, from many others, you know, many, many, and, and we've all been through some sort of struggle. And, and it's that person. And, you know, that person or, or deity that is in your head that is saying you're better than that, yep. you know, and I, I think about that as I've been a disciplinarian and I'm not comparing myself to God in any right. way, shape or form, right. but I, I'm, I'm sharing an experience with, with some, some young kids that need someone to know that there's someone there to believe in them. Mm. Uh, one of the things I always, always, um, tried to do, and, and I was never perfect by any means, uh, made lots of mistakes as a leader. Um, but I always thought I just need to be consistent. Mm. I need to be never changing Amen. ever, ever consistent. And I wanted to be that for, for the teachers that I was leading, uh, for the communities that I was leading and the, and the children that, that I was, I was being a mentor to. And, and that was a big thing for me. I wanted them to understand that no matter what, I'm going to be the same. And uh, although I don't have a church background, I, I do know the principles that are in there of, of uh, you know, a faith-based life. And, and I try to utilize those as a leader uh, because I think a lot of our leadership, if not all, uh, I would say a lot because if I say all, somebody's going, well, that's not in there, Scott. You know? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? But I think much of what we... Um, much of what we're looking for in, in a leader, whether that be, you know, a school or a church or, you know, at the factory or, you know, whatever you're doing, working at Taco Bell uh, as, as, you know, just a shift person, you're looking for someone who's consistent, someone who's not going to change, that you know that when they turn that corner and you screw up, they're, they're not going to, you know, you dirty rotten, they're going right. to, hey, come on now, you're yeah. better than that. You know, that's why I brought you on. And that's what they're looking for. I think that's really, really interesting um, how 
how much leadership psychology how much leadership is based in you know what what was written uh and the bible was taught to me as the book of instruction before leaving earth that's that's how i uh look at the bible and and what i see it and uh, i want to thank a guy named jake for that and jake i've spoke to this guy in years but when he had told me that i thought that's really interesting you know just the things we pick up yeah, you know, you know, you really wouldn't want to board a plane without a boarding pass. <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, uh, uh, <sighs> that's that's the instruction manual of of life. And uh, uh, a few years ago, I uh, I've always been an outdoorsman, loved hunting and fishing, and I ran into a guy in Blackford County, and he was really down because he didn't have a place to hunt. And I said, well, "Come on, hunt with me," and he was not church and. Uh, so uh, I took him to a really marvelous hunting area uh, for hunting and a number of times. And then he looked at me one day and he says, okay, uh, when, when, when's the shoe drop? What, you know, how many times am I going to have to go to church now because you took right. me hunting? And right. uh, I said, really, we don't want you in our church. He looked at me like I slapped him. You know? <laughs> he said, what do you mean? I said, if, if you've got the attitude where you're going to go to church because you ought to God or should have, yeah. I said, That's, I don't want you there. I want you there because you want to be there, mm -hmm. uh, not because I took you hunting and you, right. you, you're in my debt. Yeah. I said, I'm not going to leverage that. We're just doing something we enjoy doing and love doing together. And I, I said, you know, you know where my church is. You know what time the worship service is. If you want to come, come. If you don't, go to hell. No, I didn't tell him that. I just said, you know, you're welcome anytime you want to go. And uh, you know what? The next Sunday he's there because you took all the altar God or should out of it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. a good preacher friend of mine used to say, you know what? Uh, I'm tired of being altar God and should it on. And, uh, should it on is should it on is that that's it you know the reason for the chick show yeah, that's right yeah <laughs> you know i want people to come to church when they leave they find something they could use and they look at themselves and they say to myself you know this is what god may be to be mm -hmm. you know this is my purpose in existence to love god and love one another and that starts with you being able to forgive and love yourself and when that you when you make that connection, it be, life begins to flow a whole lot easier, you know, even in the tough times. And uh, so uh, I, I just, I always had a lot of fun with people being irreligious, you know. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I got to tell you one story quickly. <laughs> I got to know I, what irreligious is. Yeah, we okay. We can't I, get too far from many, it. Many years ago, I, I was serving a church in Louisiana when I was directing a nationwide television network uh, down there for a couple of years on a special assignment and uh, training youth pastors all over the United States. And uh, I, I, I found a church, I liked the pastor, and uh, uh, we, uh, we hit it off real well. And he said, could you make some calls for me? I said, yeah, yeah. So I want you to go see this guy named Chester in a nursing home. And uh, uh, so I said, okay. And uh, so I went by and knocked on Chester's door and, and uh, 
he was a truck driver for many years, and then he became a dispatcher, and then he became like the the uh, uh, the head honcho for this trucking corporation. And uh, I knocked on the door and stuck my head up and uh, in, and he looked at me and he said, "What the hell do you want?" <laughs> and I said, "I I, I want to. I came by to see you." And um, he said, well, who the hell are you? You know, truck driver yeah. language. I oh, mean, yeah. every other word out of his mouth was a cuss <laughs> word, you know. And I finally looked at Chester, you know, to get past that crusty facade. And I looked at him and I said, well, damn it, I'm your pastor. Shut up. Let me visit with you for a while, you know. And he just cracked up laughing. Yeah. He had esophageal cancer and he died a few months later. And uh, but I used as many implicatives as I could in his funeral because I, I said, you know, this was the language of truck drivers and uh, uh, I, I want to celebrate his life the way he'd want to be celebrated. I said he didn't cuss to be a big guy. He cussed because that's the way he talked. That was his language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, if you can speak people's language and they get to see you as real. Yeah. Um, then what happens is you make a connection and they'll listen to what you have to say. Ah, man, you just hit on that relationship thing. It's like you're reading my my questions I wrote down. Mm. I, I, I'm a I'm a big believer in the relationship. I'm a big believer in, you know, that's 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 the real prize is the relationship you build with one another. Us sitting here today and just sharing. Yeah. Uh, and you know this this is a vehicle to share out with um, uh, potentially, you know, I don't know what the potential is. At least 10 people. At well, least yeah. 15. Yes. <laughs> I, I think I've got 14 right now, and I'm uh, I'm going to listen to this one later to get that 15. I want to say go for it, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just to share and, and to help people understand that, you know, gosh, man, that person that you see, you know, especially bringing you in, I brought a lot of different people in, and I want to continue to do that uh, just to see just a normal guy. Yep. You know, no different than, than anybody else. And um, that that relationship is where the real prize is. <clears throat> when we when we avoid that or we 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 put a label on something, you know, when we oh, yeah. decide these preconceived notions before we have a chance to actually talk and get to know each other. Uh, I think I think we really shortchange ourselves in how special life can really be, you know, for for many years, I've, I've, all my life, I don't know if there's ever been a time when, when I didn't believe in the relationship. Right. I didn't understand why. Right. Didn't, didn't totally get it. Um, but I can remember as a kid, just a little guy. It was always about the relationship then, too. I just love, I love people. So, well, you know, uh, um, it, it's interesting when you look at relationships. Uh, I, I told my people at my church many, many, many times, you know, listen, if God's forgiven you, the worst is past. Mm. All of that's gone in God's eyes. You know, he removed it because he has the capacity, the capability to be able to do it. And uh, all your sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. Could you imagine living in the context of having a relationship with someone that you're already forgiven even before you screw up. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, 
it's done, you know. Uh, that that was always my relationship with God that I wanted to share with other people. When you accept the grace and the forgiveness of God, you know, there the Bible says, therefore, there is no, no condemnation or judgment. Uh, all that passed on to Christ. And so we come in the presence of God, we'll never know condemnation or judgment as a believer because it's all been taken away. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we can enjoy God without backing up into his presence. In my mind, I'm picturing that. You guys can't see me here. Maybe one of these days I'll do video, Gary. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready for that yet. I I have a face for, I I have a face for, for podcasting and radio. Um, But (laughs) as you were saying that, backing into uh, all I can think is, you know, that person standing behind you, just waiting for you to bump into them, be like, to startle you. And that's what I was seeing in my head. You were just painting that picture for me. And, um, uh, yeah, well, I appreciate that. That's, I think that's, that's critical for, for people to hear is, yeah. uh, and, and, but we can do that too. Yeah. We, we can give people grace. We can, we can know? choose to do that. We can love on people <sighs> because most of the time they don't get that kind of unconditional, uh, love and mm. forgiveness. Uh, it's the sort of auto God or should a world. And your job is to please me. You know, that's the way the world lives. You know, when you look at, uh, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden before they sinned, there was no selfish nature in human beings, nor no sin in the world. Uh, Adam and Eve introduced a selfish nature. And people say, well, what is that sin nature or selfish nature that we're all born with? Because we're born uh, as fallible fallen human beings and I said you know if I asked you to come over and help me cut maybe six or eight cords of firewood uh, you'd probably be saying well you know let me filter that through whether I want to or not (laughs) you know every time somebody wants something from us we filter it through self and that self determines whether we're going to do it or not, whether we want to sacrifice ourselves, whether we want to give ourselves away, whether it's our time or effort or energy or knowledge or money, you know, our relationship or whatever. And I said, you know, we'll fight that selfish nature all of our life. Uh, We're never done with it because we always filter that old manner of life that, that we're programmed by uh, you know, people call me up and say, Gary, you want to go do this? And I got to think, do I want to do it or not? You know, <laughs> it's the question of what can I do for you rather than uh, do I want to do it? Yeah. You know, and uh, um, I, I tell people, you know, one of the great things about heaven one day is there will be no sin and selfish nature in heaven. We will not filter everything we do through our own self or selfish nature. And that that is an incredible amount of freedom to be free from self. Not from knowing who you are, but being completely free from a selfish desire to protect ourself, our time, our person, our money, our resources. Uh, and everybody on earth struggles with that fallen selfish nature. Uh, and and God gives us a way out and, and a, a way to live above and beyond that nature. 
as you're as you're talking about this, all I can think about is Facebook, mm. social media, and just how critical uh, many are. Not all, but many right. are, are very critical of one another. Um, you know, heaven forbid we post something about asking if the ice cream machine is open, working or not at McDonald's. We know it's not. Right. Yeah. Do we have to ridicule that person <laughs> on Hartford City happenings for asking the question? You know, do we have to do that? And you're just talking about that filter. And boy, we could sure use some filtering between, I think many of us, uh, they're not going to say that in person. No. They're not going to say that to someone in person. They're going to look them dead in the eye and go, are you seriously asking? You know, they, I may, I probably would. I would say, are you seriously asking if the ice cream machine is working at McDonald's again? Right. You know it's not. Yeah, right. But I'm going to say yeah. that in a yeah. in a forgiving way. But, boy, it sure gets vicious on, on social media. In a social media world, everybody has an enmity, you know, where they don't know who I am. They can't get to me, right. you know. There, there's no recourse or consequences other than going to Facebook jail or whatever, <laughs> you know, and uh, and uh, you have to say some pretty ugly stuff, uh, or, uh, and I don't want to get into politics no, because uh, it, we'll lose 14 of the 15 in your audience. Well, you know? 14 of the 13 <laughs> anyway. Uh, <laughs> no, it's very it's very interesting how you're just talking about that filter, and, and I think we do a very good job for the most part. Um, I work very hard at being thoughtful in what comes out of my mouth next. And, you know, in this format, I have some forgiveness. If I say something that I don't want out there, I can right. go back and edit. But if Gary says something he doesn't want out there, I won't go edit that. That's right. That's okay with me. That's right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I remind my listeners all the time. I don't edit much. Yeah, it's right. very, it's very right. rare. Well, you know, I've been known to be wrong before, oh. you know, and if, and if I don't remember it, my wife reminds me, right. you know, and uh, so. Uh, 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 I got to tell everybody, the first thing Gary said today at my house, I, was, he, I told him I just got done eating and uh, that I'd use some, some hot honey <clears throat> on, I was trying to make a Mexican meal, you know, like tacos. Uh, my wife was coming home from work, just trying to make her something. And, and so I made this uh, ground chicken with, with some, some taco seasoning and put some hot, hot and spicy honey on there. He said, ah, sounds like my wife. Hot and spicy. Amen. Like, man, that's that's how we keep it going for for many, many years right there, right? Just to that's right. continue to compliment each other and, and have fun. And so my my I gotta get to some questions. Go ahead. We could be here all night. I can feel it. Like I'm in I'm in I'm in the pocket, folks. So um where are you from originally? I, I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland. Okay. Uh, that's what's called the peninsula, the There's Delmarva. There's a hint of southern. Delmarva <laughs> Peninsula, yeah. And uh, it's uh, three hours from the Washington-Baltimore Beltway, seven hours from New York, uh, two hours down to Virginia Beach. But the Chesapeake Bay is on one side, and the Atlantic Ocean is on the other. And gotcha. so we grew up in a farming community, small towns, went to... Uh, uh, high school in a town of about 5,000 and uh, that uh, uh, but we had opportunity to to spend time in the ocean surfing my brother and I fishing hunting uh, you know we had horses we had cattle uh, we had hogs we had uh, 40 head of standard bread race horses oh my gosh uh, dad had a sand and gravel business and 
we put up about 15,000 bales of hay and straw a year for all the critters. And That'll make you, you grow you up know, real quick right there. I came home from college, and I told Dad, I said, you know, Dad, you taught us how to work hard. You just never taught us how to like it, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but it was a, it was a, it's a wonderful, it was a wonderful place to grow up. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could go anywhere by yourself at any time. I had 16 first cousins and, you know, we all got together every week or so and played together and yeah. lived together. And, uh, so a lot of family and uh, a lot of small towns. And if you screwed up, you know, mom and dad had a phone call on the landline right. before you got home. That's right. And uh, you walked in the house and mom would say, did you do that? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and my mother was a, my mother was a smoker and uh, she died of, at 69 of throat cancer, but she smoked all her life. But she would sit in a, a lazy boy chair in the den where you enter the house. And my brother and I would, sneak up to the house at night if we were late or we've been doing some stuff we shouldn't have been doing sure. and uh, we figured the word had filtered out by then and we peek in the window and and if mom's cigarette was really burning brightly and repeatedly really fast she was pissed you uh -huh. know <laughs> you know she was oh, going yeah. for it. but she was sort of laid back taking a drag every minute or so then we would just march right on the house because we were new okay but we had to make sure we had our story straight before we went in the house when mom was mad you know so but it was a great place to live and grow up on between the chesapeake bay and the atlantic ocean and with family and friends and small townism so that's awesome mm. oh my gosh <laughs> makes me just think about there was a lady in our neighborhood her name was kim collett and she'd see me riding my bikes around with the buddies or whatever and she'd go scott i won't tell your mom i saw you smoking <laughs> I, I wasn't smoking i wasn't smoking i saw that i saw you smoking it was just that reminder that yeah. there's someone watching yeah neighborhood had her eyes on you That's always right. you know yeah. my mom was you know a daughter of the town and knew mm. everyone and uh yeah I, I didn't i didn't mess around yeah well at least you know where people could see you know? uh, well one of my worst mistakes my cousin and i would his dad had a service station and we worked there in the summer and pump gas and we worked on cars on nights and weekends and we were gearheads and and uh built quarter mile uh race cars and yeah. would 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 go up and we'd we'd tear up our whole salary on a Saturday night and work all week long to fix it, to go back up again on another Saturday, you know, on another Saturday night. But, uh, I, I built a 57 Chevy and painted it vitamin C orange. And it was a huge mistake because in 10 counties, there was only one, one. vitamin only C one. orange 57 Chevy. And, uh, that was Gary, you know, and oh my God, you know, <laughs> I wanted to paint the thing black after a few months. Yeah. Everybody had a black one. Yeah. I had a, I had a ZX-10, a crotch rocket when I was uh, 20, 21. And, uh, that thing was loud. Mm. It was, you know, of course had to be loud mm -hmm. and it was fast. And, uh, there's no doubt my mom had to be going, Oh, there he goes again. 
because <laughs> we lived a block off the highway. Back then, you'd cruise the strip, right? Yeah. So back in the 90s, or 80s and 90s, we we're cruising the strip, and I would come up out of A&W, and I'd just get all over it. We only live like three blocks from A&W, Gary. <laughs> Three, like three blocks. You were just telegraphing it. Yeah. Uh, 100%. And I come flying up through there on one wheel, you know, going 80 mile an hour and in between cars right down the highway. Like, you know, I was invincible. Yeah. Yeah. You bulletproof. Uh, yeah. I found out later you're immortal, <laughs> not invincible. You know, I came off that thing one time. But, but yeah, I mean, they, my mom knew. My mom knew. There's no way she didn't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I hear people, and I live, you know, a mile off the highway, and I can hear motorcycles. She knew. Yeah. You know, parents know, people know, and they're going to tell. But, oh, my gosh. That just reminds me one time my brother and I, uh, I had this old Chevy pickup truck. I had a 66 C10. It was hot rotted up. My brother had a motorcycle, and uh, we we hot rod through town. Or it might have been the Cadillac. I can't remember now. But we're hot rod through town. And I don't know if you know uh, – Johnny Amos in town here. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We see him, we seen him somewhere. I think might've seen him out at the, uh, the deli out on North end town. And he said, I'm going to tell your mom, I'm going to tell your mom, you guys are racing. <laughs> we were too, but Johnny's even going to tell my mom. Uh, there you go. There's you no get tattled on by everybody. That's right. Yeah. My mom didn't smoke. Uh, yeah, she would yeah. sit up. Jennifer's mom would yeah. sit up too. You would know when you came in late. Yeah. Uh, after a while, we went to the adjoining small towns where nobody knew us, you know. So you didn't get as quite as much trouble, you know. I was never that smart. I was never that smart. I was afraid I was going to get in trouble get in another town. You for dating some of the other local girls, but, you know, as a, uh, that was about the size of it. Yeah. My fear was I didn't know all the police. That <laughs> <did too. laughs> That's awesome. 43 years. In those 43 years, I can't get over it. That's, I mean, that's a journey. That's a journey. It's a long time. You know, the the boy I was talking to um, a few weeks ago, he's 14, and, and I thought, you know, one, one thing I've always talked to my students about is, what are you going to do when, when you're, you know, in your 20s? What do you want to do when you get older? Mm. And, and here they are at 13, 14 years old. They're still thinking about what they did when they were eight right they're not thinking about 25 with kids and going to college and everything all those responsibilities you know or you know having a job and apprenticeships they're not they they have no idea they're not there yet just thinking about that if somebody would have said gary this is all you got to do to get your doctorate how long would have you have you know right i mean but once you're in it you're making that commitment right. and you're i'm not going back yeah heck no man i've already i i'm in it yeah, I, I'm not going to do all that work for nothing. But I'm just thinking, 43 years. I'm not a 43 year guy. Oh, there you go. I'm not a 43 uh, year guy, man. Well, I I remember one church I was serving. <laughs> uh, some of my churches were not long term. They didn't want me there that long either, you know. But that's okay. One uh, one church I was serving, uh, uh, we had a guy that was on my board. I was there eight years and. And every opportunity we had to make a difference in the community, in lives, in young families, for the kingdom, he said no. We had monthly board meetings, and for eight years, he never said yes. (laughs) And when I left, they had a little going-away celebration, and he came up to me and says, Gary, we didn't always get along. And I looked at him and said, we never got along. It wasn't a question of 
ever getting along. We never got along. I said, you never made a yes decision in eight years. There's something wrong there, you know? Mm -hmm. And I said, I got to tell you something. I said, I've been praying for your funeral for about seven years. <laughs> and oh my God, his reaction was, you know, like, what? You know, <laughs> and I said, said yeah, no. man, I... You know, you're a miserable human being. You know, you make your wife miserable, your children miserable, you make your church miserable. You're never positive, upbeat, forward thinking, looking at the choices and, and stuff that could be uh, for the lives of others. You're just going to look at if it, it can in inconvenience you. And so, yeah, I prayed a long time for your funeral. He said, that's the worst thing in the world I ever heard. And I said, you know, hey, the church would be better off you would be in heaven, you would be happy, and leadership here would be a whole lot better, you know? <laughs> and uh, the funny thing was, two months later, I went to this new church, and I received the, the old church newsletter, the monthly church newsletter in the mail, and it showed where he died. Oh, gosh. Oh, my God, you know? And oh. uh, all I could think about saying to God is, you could have done this a lot sooner, you know? Come on, Lord, you know? And, uh, but, you know, he, he kept me on a hotline to God every month. God, you know. Uh, uh, so, but I always had a bit of a sacrilegious or irreligious or, you know, not the uh, less, you know, wear the three-piece suit, white shirt and tie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, after seven years of pre-Christian into everything there was, um, you know, I wanted people to be real and, mm -hmm. and enjoy God. Authentic. Yeah. And uh, I'd go into hospitals and visit people, and you'd go into hospital, and you sit down with them, and they're complaining about everything in the world. Oh my God, this place is horrible. And, you know, the nurses are horrible. The doctors are horrible. The food's horrible. The medicine's horrible. You know, my wife doesn't understand me. My kids don't come see me. And, you know, yada, yada, yada. I just let them vent. And, uh, and then uh, I just take their hand. I said, let's pray. I said, okay. Pastor, appreciate you praying for me. I said, well, I ain't prayed yet. And, uh, <laughs> That was a cue, you know. They should have <laughs> taken it. that cue, you know, and said, Pastor, don't pray for me. And I just take their hand and say, Lord, you know, so-and-so-and-so-and-so is miserable. Instead of them getting them well, I'm going to pray that you'll just go ahead and take them on home. And, oh, my God, they'd snatch their hand out of yours and, like, no, I, I didn't want you to pray like that. I said, you know, life's miserable for you. I want you to be happy in heaven. And uh, a week later, you go visit them in a the hospital and you walk into their, their hospital room, and you look at them and you say, how are you today? And you know what they say? Hey, I'm getting better, and the nurses are getting better, and the doctors are getting better, and my wife's getting better, and you know I'm really looking forward to getting out of here and, and going on with life. And what they're really saying is, I don't want you to pray that I die again, you know. But it got their attention in a way that they could refocus and reprioritize their life. And um, uh, that, that doing what people would see as irreligious in the, the religious world was not seen as irreligious in the non-Christian world or the unchurched world. Mm -hmm. We had a, uh, we had a Palm Sunday service many years ago and, uh, uh, 
it wasn't at the church. We held it at the school. And uh, my leadership team said, what are we going to call it? And I said, we're going to call it Wild Ass Sunday. Like, what? You, you know, these were people with a church background, half of them, you know, and they're they're just dying. You know, we can't call church Wild Ass Sunday. You're crazy. And I said, listen, the Bible says, it's in the book. The Bible says that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a wild colt, on a wild donkey. You know, what do we call a donkey? We call him an ass, you know? And he was wild. He was never been tamed. But Jesus put a blanket on the back of him and rode him three miles from Bethany into Jerusalem. And the daggone donkey never bucked him off once, you know? And I said, so we're going to have Wild Ass Sunday. We're going to invite everybody to Wild Ass Sunday. People came in and are like, I mean, hundreds of people. Yeah. Because they wanted to know, word got around, we're having Wild Ass Sunday. You know, is this, is, you know, is is this like a wet t-shirt night? Is this, you know, what's going on here, you know? (laughs) And uh, uh, we we told the story, which in church is pretty tame, called Palm Sunday. And Jesus rode the donkey into Jerusalem, you know. Right. Yeah, you know, well, there's a lot more drama to it than that. Sure. I said, you know what, when Jesus jumped on the back of that wild ass, his presence calmed that beast. Yeah. And, yeah. He, and Jesus rode him for three miles into Jerusalem, and he was tame. I, 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 uh, we told the story, and I said, you know what? God can tame your wild ass. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now that's funny, and it's irreligious, but it, it it's the actual really story really. of taking a wild creature yeah. and bring it to a place of peace and civility with itself, with its owner, with its surrounding, and with the Lord of the universe. And I said, you know, you turn the Lord of the universe into your life and let him run your life instead of you, mm-hmm. you won't be wild anymore. <laughs> and you'll enjoy life. And so, you know, doing stuff like that that's out there on the edge was was coming up with those creative cutting edge that unchurched people would come because they just were curious. <laughs> you know, people came and listened to Jesus preach because they were curious. Did he really feed those 5,000 people? I don't know if he really fed those. Did he walk on water? I don't know if he, I'm going to go see it for myself, that's you right. know, and, uh, you know, and he did tame a wild ass. That's, that's right, that's baby. Right. You know, so, uh, so you'll never look at that story again, or you may never want to read that story again, you know, so, uh, but, uh, Oh my God! So what's uh, the toughest part? What's the toughest part of being a pastor of a church to being that leader of those people? Um, you know, praying for a lot of church people to go to heaven. That's the you know. Yeah. Uh, there are people that have grown up in church all their life, and uh, they're great people. They've got great character. Uh, They've made great decisions in life. They've had a good moral compass, you know, with the Scripture. They have a relationship with God. But uh, when church is about church, you've missed the purpose of church. The purpose of church 
was to reach the people that are not churched. Which came first, the mission of Christ or the church of God, church of Christ? The mission came before the church. Mm-hmm. And most people, not all, but most people in church want to make decisions around what is good for the church, which is what is good for us in the church. That's the most difficult uh, hurdle to overcome is to get them to realize and look beyond themselves. I mean, you know, they, they suffer from a narcissism of church. You know, the purpose, you know, I went to a church one time and they said, well, your job here is to make us happy. And I said, well, you're going to be a lot of disappointed people here, you know, because that's not my job. If you're happy, it's because you choose to be happy. But my job is to share the message of Christ with this community of about 300 people here. And I went around and knocked on every door, all 300 homes in the three years I was there, you know, and I watched the church go from about 35 to 100. Uh, and uh, I invited church people to go with me, and they wouldn't go with me. Hmm. Because the purpose of church was to be church. When you're doing church and being church, that's different than participating with Christ in the mission of the church. When the mission of the church precedes the formation of the church, then you are truly the church. But when when the purpose of people sitting down in the pew is for you to take care of them and babysit them until they die or I pray you to heaven, <laughs> then you, you've missed it, you know? Sure. I, I showed up one Sunday in a church sort of a downtown kind of church with a Hawaiian shirt, khaki shorts, and titty shoes. And these people are used to three-piece suits and a robe, you know, and an ordination of stole with doctorate chevrons, you know, on the sleeves and this kind of crap, you know. And yeah. I, I show up in a Hawaiian church in khaki shorts. And one of, the, one of the little old ladies comes up to me after the service, and she said, did you get them clothes at Goodwill? He was a mean old cuss. And I said, you know what? We shop at the same place. <laughs> Gosh, she cavalierly turned on her heel and walked out, and she never, never really wanted to speak to me again after that, you know? But getting people to think beyond themselves. Um, Jesus never thought about himself. He didn't have a selfish nature. Sometimes the church is a group of people with a selfish nature, and and they want to take care of everybody in the church and themselves, and they got blinders on to the fact that 60% of our culture doesn't go to church. Probably 65 70% may not even be believers. Uh, but when they show up on Sunday morning or Wednesday or have meetings or whatever, all they're thinking about is their little circle and it doesn't get any bigger than that. Uh, That's the toughest part of ministry is to refocus people's orientation to understand that the mission came before the church. And in a local church, if the mission doesn't come before the church, Whoever's there, when they die, you don't have that, quote, church anymore because you never you never took mm-hmm. care of the true mission of the church. 
I had a mantra at one time. Uh, I may I may be perceiving this wrong, but it sounds very similar. That I believed that I had to change behavior before I change belief. Mm. And uh, in, in those that I was working with, you know, if, if I can get you to to start doing the right things, then your belief right. comes along with that. And I, I feel that with what you're saying is, you know, hey, instead of being your center being here, why don't we think about our why right. rather than our what? Right. You know, what what am I rather than why am I? And I, I, I think about the why when I do something. Why am I doing this? What's the big picture? Right. Rather than what am I doing? The right. what's pretty simple. Right. You know, I mean, we can we can write that on my, my whiteboard and here's what I'm doing. Right. But the why is very difficult to to define sometimes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I don't, because I, I think it is so big for what you've done. Uh, I think that why is very big. Um, you know, it's, but it, it's also very simple. It's not big. It, you know, I, <laughs> I'll give you an illustration. Uh, each year in Indianapolis, we had an annual conference where all the pastors and lay leaders from hundreds and hundreds of churches in Indiana came together to make the decisions on the, the for the next year for the purpose, the mission, what they wanted to accomplish, the agendas and stuff like that. And uh, I was at annual conference one year, and it was a bit bored uh, for me. But you know, but I was raised as an evangelist, so you know, you know, talking about some of the nuts and bolts wasn't really exciting. It's necessary, sure, but it, you know, it doesn't spark a whole lot of interest and joy and fire <laughs> in me and. I went over to uh, the local hotel because I had to run some uh, papers off because uh, I was still working full-time and we'd started the commercial construction venture. And so I had to send some paperwork off. And I went over to this Kinko's inside the bottom basement of this hotel, had a business office, and I asked the lady if she could run me some copies. And she said, yeah, and then can you fax them? You know, after I fill them out, we were on a lunch break, and uh, and uh, uh, I just looked at her and I said, "Hey, where do you go to church?" And uh, she said, "I don't go to church." She said, "Now my boss, that lady over there, she goes to church." And about that time, she drifted over to the conversation, and and I said, "Where do you go to church?" And she said, "You know, ABC Kingdom Church, whatever it was." And uh, uh, I said, "Have you ever invited this lady to church?" Kinko's got real quiet. <laughs> no. I said, have you ever shared a love of God with her? Uh, no. And I said to her, I said, I said to the lady waiting on me, I said, have you ever considered becoming a Christian? And uh, she said, you know, I've thought about what it means to be a Christian a few times, but she said, uh, um, there's some other things that I want to do in life that really doesn't match up with being a Christian. I said, okay, I'm not going to ask you to remunerate those, you know. Yeah. And uh, I said, let me ask you a question. If you put all of those things that you want to do 
on one side of a scale and you put an eternity with God on the other side of the scale, I said, which you think will carry the most weight in eternity? And she said, that's a no-brainer. She said, all the things that I think I want to do that doesn't match Christianity, Christianity would win in a heartbeat. And I said, if that's true, then what, what is stopping you from becoming a Christian? She said, nothing. I said, would you like to be a Christian? And we prayed right there in Kiko's, and she gave her life to Christ. And I turned to her manager, and I said, okay, it's your job to help disciple her, teach her, you know, and walk with her and encourage her as, as a new believer. And then I went back and sat for another six hours in a boring ass meeting, you know, and I thought, what would happen if the thousands of people here at this meeting right. were out there witnessing to people in downtown Indianapolis? Right. What kind of difference could we make in our world? And and that brings me back to the point where what's more important, the mission of the church or the church? Mm-hmm. When 99% of our energy and passions are given over to the promulgation of the institution and nothing or 1% is given to the mission of the church, and most of the time that's the foreign missions because we don't want people in Haiti and Africa and South America to go to hell, so we'll give them a little bit of money so that they can you know, maybe make it into the kingdom. But the person who's down the street right i'm not really concerned about their eternal destiny and i'm not willing to mm. sacrifice my time and energy to try to make a difference in their life mm-hmm. uh, when my kids were growing up one thing i instilled in all of them is you have a right to make your own choices but for every choice you make there's consequences or results so i said when they got to be 10, 8, 9, 10, uh, I said, you're going to make your decisions from now on. That's not my job. We've given you a foundation. We've given you a faith. We've given you a moral compass. We've taught you what character is. We've exemplified it in our lives. But you're going to run those decisions by us. And so they would come and say, you know, I think I want to do A, B, C, or D. I'd say, okay, now, if you do A, B, C, or D, let's say take A, uh, what's going to happen when you make that decision? And they start walking it out. And I said, okay, you do that, and then this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, mm-hmm. and this is where you end up. I said, is this where you want to end up? Well, no, Dad. Mm-hmm. I don't want to end up there. I said, then you know what, go back and make another decision and let's talk about it and let's walk it out and see where it ends up. And if that's where you want to go and I can agree with you, then I want to be your biggest cheerleader. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I don't want you to walk out there and get there and say, why did dad let me go do this? You know, I don't believe in education, you know, by two befores, you know, and uh, I'd much rather have them think through it. Uh, Now my kids have a lot of friends that 
didn't have parents that helped them make long-term decisions, mm-hmm. think through it, walk it out before they did it. And, you know, I remember my kids, all my kids coming home and say, Dad, oh, what's, what's wrong with my friends? You know, they, they don't know how to make good decisions. And uh, I think that's the greatest legacy you can leave a church. You can leave your children, you know, you can you can leave in the world is to help people mm-hmm. look at the long term, make good decisions, walk it out, and when they get there, they're excited about where they are, they're proud of where they are, and they see the difference that that decision is going to make in their in their world. There's no doubt in my mind you have changed and improved many many lives. Uh, in in your years, Gary, and I know you've had an impact on me and my family, and uh, I've probably pissed off as many other people well, I'm too. Sure you that's, have. I mean, that's okay. part of it, you right? Know. I mean, um, you know, even even when you're praying for him to go to heaven, you know, <laughs> you won't ever forget that. Uh-uh. That's right. Yeah, uh, uh, I taught my I taught my daughter a lesson years ago. That, you know, listen, we can we can tell somebody we learned a lot from you. Right. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Good, bad, or ugly. That's, That's right. right. I yeah. learned a lot from you. And, mm. and I've said that to folks, and I've meant it as I've learned a lot from you. And I've meant it as I've learned a lot from you. you know? <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, where's the comma at? You know, let's eat grandma. Right. Or let's eat grandma. <laughs> <laughs> Commas are important, yeah, my friend. Absolutely. So just uh, I want to wrap up, but gosh, we didn't even talk about knives. Nah, no. So. We're going to save that for another one. Okay. We're going to do this again. We could do that. And we're, we're, we're not even scratching the surface of the, the Gary Hall, uh, Dr. Gary Hall. I'm going right. to start calling you Dr. Hall now. Okay. That's okay. That's You've a... been wrong before. <laughs> 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 uh, I've had a great time, my friend. Thank and, you for uh, the invitation. Man, yeah. I, I'm so glad. I, I passed by your house a couple times, and I told Jennifer – uh, it was probably, it's probably a month ago. I said, when I get home, we were on our way to Muncie mm-hmm. and, uh, I said, Hey, when I get home, don't let me forget. I, I saw you out mowing. I said, don't let me forget to call, uh, send Gary a, a message to see if he'll come on the podcast. She goes, okay. Mm-hmm. You know, by the time you get home, you know, I'd forgotten to get gas. Yeah. I'd forgotten to call Gary. I've forgotten, I'd forgotten to go to Walmart like yeah. we were going to or wherever right. we were going. Yeah. Nobody forgets to go to Walmart. Like, yeah, that's right. It's just, yeah. You're praying that you don't have to go to Walmart. Yeah. But uh, then the other day, we're coming by again, and I uh, just looked over, and I seen your property over there, and I said, I get home, I'm calling Gary. I'm going to send him a message, and, and I'm glad I did. And mm. Thanks so much for, for taking the time. And uh, it, It's what you're saying, like what you're exactly what you said. We have to decide that it's worth it, you know, that um, I, I'm, I started this podcast with the belief that it's, it's worth sharing my life experiences with others and then finding others to come in and share their life experiences. Whether, whether my, whether my 12 listeners now, uh, believe, (laughs) uh, you know, get it or, you know, disagree or something. I hope they get something, right? Get past yourself long enough to get something, uh, from, from what I, you know, what I share, what Gary shares, what my other guests have shared and, and just pick up that one little nugget and it's worth it. You know, right. uh, I used to go to coaching, uh, clinics, you know, like you were saying, you're going to the, and, and those coaching clinics, I always thought if I can just bring back one drill, it was worth my time, yeah. you know, just yeah. to, to associate with others that have a passion for something. And, and, um, 
and to get get to bring back that one nugget that might change one of my players' seasons or career as a softball player or whatever basketball player. Um, it was worth it. If if it gives me an opportunity to learn one more thing to make me a better coach, a better leader, a better a better human being, uh, then it was worth it. And that's what I hope my listeners get from from all of this is just one little nugget. That's all you need. You know, maybe maybe if you're having a bad day and you hear one one cute stupid story yeah. 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 That, yeah. that makes it a little bit better. And that's they'll, what I'm hoping. They'll all be looking for Wild Ass Sunday on church. Wild you know? Ass Sunday. <laughs> Jesus taming that wild ass. Uh, That's funny stuff. That's right. (laughs) My friend, thank you so much. Thank you, my brother. God bless. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and putting up with us. This has been an hour and 25-ish minutes. That's a lot. I mean. A lot of time. It is a lot of time, but it's it's time well spent. You know, what else are you going to be doing? Sitting in the car, sitting on the mower, you know taking a jog, a walk, whatever. And like you were saying, it's junk in, junk out. And uh, what we listen to is, is really a big deal. Well, thank you, everybody. Appreciate you. We're out. <laughs>